Welcome to Roll to Save, the RPG history podcast. Vampire, the Masquerade. Hello and welcome to this, our roundtable episode on the very dark and angsty topic of Vampire the Masquerade. I have with me, as usual, my co-hosts Jason and Steve. Hello, gentlemen. Hey, how's it going? Oh, Ian, how's it going? It's going good here. It is good and good here as well. It's a public holiday, so I cannot complain yeah, about that. same over here in the UK. It's brilliant. More of those, please. Yeah, no, more of those would be good. Uh, we also have Wes. Wes has returned after another episode. We obviously didn't put him off last time. How are you doing, mate? Uh, I'm all right. It, 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 was, it took some time to recover. You know, the, there, was, there, was, there was a lot of pain after the last one. But I, I feel like I'm just about ready. I'm just talking about, about the this. podcast, right? Uh, I think so. Oh, there was that other thing. Yeah, no, yeah, the podcast. You're okay. Excellent. And we also have with us a special guest. He is the host of the rather wonderful uh, Call of Cthulhu podcast, The Good Friends of Jackson Elias. He is also a world-famous author. Did I get that right, Matt? There's a lofty pedestal you've put me on there, but I'll take it. Well, you can stand (laughs) in that pedestal, my friend. So, yeah, Matt Sanderson. So, welcome to the show, Matt. Thank you for joining us. No worries. Glad to be here. And like all new guests in the show, I'm going to ask you the same question I ask everyone. How did you get started in role-playing? What were your first games and what are your sort of fondest memories? Well, I'm going to loop this background uh, straight back to yourself, really, because you were part of the first game that I did play. Um, oh, my, my apologies. <laughs> it was a week before my first GCSE exams, and I was going somewhat nuts with stress. So one of our mutual friends, Tim Sell, suggested that I take a step out of reality for a bit and head along to a, uh, to a game. And so it took me to this rather dark and seedy room above the Queen Vic in Warburton um, to play um, MK by Night, to play uh, Vampire Masquerade LARP. And yeah, it's uh, kind of the gateway drug. It's got me onto uh, a few things, got me into a career, a career in the industry now as well. So writing for uh, various game lines, in Vampire included, so I've done four books for them now. And yeah, I think fondest memories would uh, just have to be that it's vampires a game like no other. It's such a big game where you've got so many players involved, so many moving parts, and it's very, very much its own thing. And rather than not so much one shots, but definitely longer games, it's definitely got that epic quality to it. That's something that I highlighted in the first part of the the podcast when I did the history that it, it is essentially a game like nothing else certainly when it when it first came out back in 1991 there was nothing like that both in terms of the the scale and also the the subject matter itself i know both jason and wes you are long-time vampire players steve have you ever played vampire was it uh, a game that you spend a lot of time on i spent a fair amount of time in the world of darkness through varying incarnations over the last what 25 odd years 30 years yeah i mean mostly vague recollections from college of doing one shots and random games in darkened bars and college student unions and things like that and then with yourself you know we some of some of our earliest kind of role playing was doing world of darkness so yeah many many times over the year and i've kept up to date with it over the years it's definitely a system that i'm 
pretty familiar with. And I'll put this out to all of you, but Jason, you can start because we'll do it in the age order and you're by far the oldest. What got you started with Vampire and what, what drew you into it? Probably when I realised I could actually be as old as I truly am in real life and that the older you got, the more powerful you were, which is also true of real life. So fear me. So 1991, this kind of game hit, the first edition of Vampire, kind of hit the shelves just way before I even thought of doing Vampire as a LARP. And I remember kind of getting this book, and it was kind of this bluey-green kind of marble-esque with this single red rose on it and all this gothic font. And, you know, you've mentioned a few times that, you know, I have a history of that kind of thing. And, and it just kind of appealed to me as a... I mean, I wasn't even an angsty teenager. I was 21 at this point, right? So don't say I am. That is accurate, right? I'm not underestimating for better than your 21 again, maybe. <laughs> With several years' experience. And, and, yeah, I've never really... You know, the whole angsty, uh, oh, woe is me, uh, beast I am, less beast I become kind of thing. It is... Yeah, I read Dan Rice novels as well, so I'm not proud of it. I've made the jokes about vampire being angsty and talking about it being a sort of overblown goth thing, but in my experience, it never actually played like that. I always loved the humanity element of it, and I think as more a long-time ref, and I didn't really play that often, I loved humanity in that it reigned in the excesses of a lot of players, because without the humanity mechanic i think it could be very easy for vampire just to be superheroes with fines a bunch of people running around with amazing powers but the humanity mechanic stopped people just like booting down the door of the police station and reenacting that scene from terminator and i, I never really found people getting into the. there were certainly people played very powerful personal storylines of personal horror which is great but there was never much sort of uh, sitting at top of buildings with your black trench coat blowing behind you while you, you moan over your lost love. I know, Jason, you desperately wanted to play characters like that. We vetoed them constantly. It always suited itself to a very deep form of role-playing and sometimes very introspective. I, I've certainly run games of Vampire for individual players, and it works brilliantly for that. I started with second edition in, I think that was... 1994 when I first get into that and certainly a lot of the artwork at the time would make you believe that it was this angsty gothy game I got I think I got the main rule book and the player's guide or the storyteller's guide I can't remember which one but it's got this woman in sunglasses moaning over some dead body as a single rose lies beside him all right okay I'm not really sure I'm going to be massively into this but then you start reading the book itself, you're like, wow, this is fantastic stuff. My experience with Vampire comes mainly through the LARP. Um, and in fact, the first proper tabletop game may well be the one that we end up playing whenever that comes to be. I'd I'd moved to the town that I live in now and just come from university and done a bit of role playing in my youth. Obviously, we've, we've spoken about Star Wars previously and, and other systems. And, you know, not knowing anyone in town, one of the... One of the guys I worked with was a keen role player and wanted to do some stuff. And we found a couple of guys locally that were looking for players. So we went around there to do some tabletop. And, and it was from there that we met somebody who played in this vampire lot and, you know, suggested, you know, we should come along and try it out. And I was like, yeah, but I remember the kids at uni that did that around the streets doing stuff. And I'm not sure I can cope with like 
being that person this all feels a bit weird and uncomfortable for me like I like sitting in a room doing this stuff and rolling dice he was the, the colleague was very keen so I was like okay I'll do it for him we'll go along we'll see what it's like and um, yeah much like Matt some seedy dark room above a pub and you're thinking oh my god what have I let myself into that game certainly was very different to what I'd been told about um, the LARP that happened um, back at my university. There was a lot more strategic intellectual players. There was still, you know, there was still the characters that wanted to go on firebomb police stations and stuff like that. Um, and you know who I'm thinking of. We'll mention no names. You know, there was there was also the the conniving, backstabbing, manipulation aspects that some of these players, uh, some of the some of the actual people on this podcast, really enjoyed doing. And I think that that was the bit that, that really appealed and kind of drew me in but I was it was like a whole new world and it wasn't the as, as we've said the angsty gothy world that it could possibly have been it was there was a lot more variety to it yeah and, and it just from there it was like a five-year trip of of making new friends just a regular one of a better word embrace of this dark world which was just a fun ride from start to end such a soap opera like that that i was thinking about this i'm like the, the best analogy in a lot in a lot of the games and experience i had was it was such a soap opera in a good way not like a, the really bad soap opera that, that's just kind of like a picture in my head a lot of the time i was thinking of exactly what you're saying all the conniving the backstabbing yeah it's definitely such, such a added such a dimension to a role-playing game Interestingly, Wes, I can actually remember uh, just before you started, because I was at that point was still involved with running that game and it was me and and two other guys. And for whatever reason, the pair of them seemed to have an arms race going between them as to who could recruit the most new players. I remember the the individual who recruited you proudly coming along to our refs meet and say, oh, I've got another new player coming along and his name's Wesley and blah, 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 blah. Yeah, and and that if we're if we're talking about the right person, I kind of responded in kind by recruiting that person for the workplace in my actual job. So yeah, it kind of he he pulled me into a role playing game and I pulled him into a into a job. It's, uh, it's not the Masons though, right? No, not the Mason. Okay, just checking, because it sounds a bit <laughs> nepotistic you know what i mean yeah yeah it's like a much nerdier version of the masons it's vampires and technology companies <laughs> technocracy yes. yeah which actually sounds um, like a plot itself it does i mean the only thing i would add is, is the whole thing about that there was a massive difference to me between tabletop vampire and live action vampire tabletop vampire it was all about the coterie and it basically became dnd with fangs in my experience and it wasn't particularly great i played a few games of the, of the tabletop and they all ended up the same as you said it was superheroes for fans and i don't think the humanity system did stop people it probably would have stopped you and me but most people they, they, they were just interested in turning into a bat or a wolf and ripping something's throat out and well, but then when it came to the larp stuff i remember the guy who recruited me into the larp game um he was the kind of incumbent prince when it all started and um, he came around and I'd known him for years and he was like do you ever thought about doing a LARP and I was like hitting people with rubber swords or sitting in a corner in the dark room being morose and he was like the second one I was like yeah I'll give it a go oh, why not you know nothing else to do but yeah as has already commented it, isn't, it was so political for so long you know I spent many many a good year I, I learned web design because of it for god's sake let alone anything else because I was so into it and I couldn't stop dealing and thinking about it. it was proper proper gateway drug as matt said and i think the only thing that's had a bigger effect on my role playing life 
than vampire is probably D&D. Going back to your point, though, about it being sort of superheroes with fangs, I found that whenever I ran tabletop, the games that went best were the ones where I would give the players pre-generated characters where I'd already written the relationships in. There was even something they did in earlier editions of Vampire where they, the idea of a coterie chart where you had almost like a little flow chart that says, I think this about him, I think this about her, I don't like this person, I like this person. And it gave you, as a player, a little agenda of this is what I should be trying to get out of, of this session. Because the problem with people writing their own characters for tabletop, as opposed to LARP, LARP's a kind of different beast, but with tabletop, you would have people choose the concept and write their character. And when you're writing a vampire story, it's not the same as writing a D&D adventure where there is a fixed location where you go there, kick the doors down, kill the monsters, take the loot. And the character classes are very much designed around the idea of going and kicking down doors and stealing loot. In vampire, you can be virtually anything. And when you're designing a game as a storyteller, you're designing a story. And the problem is if people pick one of those character concepts that doesn't fit the story, you've either got to go away and then jury rig the story or you have this poor soul sitting on the outside who doesn't really fit in and doesn't have an amazing time. And so with most vampire stories, you find yourself writing this political story that's usually about the conflict, you know, night by night conflict between vampires. But whereas you've got somebody who wants to play the gangrel loner who's out in the wilderness commuting with nature and talking to werewolves, well, he's not going to fit in that story. It'll manifest in one of two ways. Other you you have to maybe crowbar in this brooding loner or else he just gets fed up and leaves the game or he decides to take his frustration out in the game and before you know it, there's a, a wolf-fueled rampage in downtown Detroit and the whole thing just goes off the rails. Whereas with LARP, I think as a storyteller, you have much more control in that it's a much bigger environment. It can be more accommodating because like-minded players will find like-minded players. And you can also really kind of veto a lot of concepts from the start and say, this game will be you know, focused around this. Please do not try and play these things. And I could see your face smirking, Jason, because I know exactly where you're about to go with this. There you go. There you go. I, I do feel we, we just we very much enjoyed in our time when we were reffing that first Sabat game, and you know people come to us with all these kind of weird and wacky concepts, and you know we, we very much enjoyed fitting them into the narrative and, and building a game to support their, their their wishes. You see that that's actually a complete lie because Jason and I set up a, a Sabat game twenty years ago, in fact, which makes me feel ancient. Seriously. Uh, yeah, it was 2000 we came up with the idea, yeah. And as part of this, with most most vampire games at that time, in fact, all vampire games I played in at that time were Camarilla games. Camarilla games, you have a choice of like seven clans that you can play that cover a huge gamut of vampiric stereotypes. And sometimes you could play something a little bit different. But ours was a Sabat LARP. With Sabat games, you get even more clans you can choose from. There's a huge variety. And there was a very, very small subsection that me and Jason said, you can't play these things. You know, we don't want them in the game. They're not suited to uh, what we're wanting to do. And then we sat back and waited for people to ask to play these things. And pre- predictably, they did. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I just, it actually, I, mean, I, was, I was fairly young then. I was in my early 20s. And it did stagger me, the stupidity of some people, 
that they can actually read an email that says, here are the things you can play, here are the things you can't play, and they instantly go to the, well, can I play one of the things I can't play because that'll make me really interesting and original. I want to be last of a dying race. No, you can't. Go away. And I think Vampire was actually one of those games that really lent itself to that. It's one of the, the aspects of what I disliked was you would always have people come to you with puppy dog eyes, wanting to play something different. And sometimes people would have a really cool concept for that. And we did consider it and go, okay, you know what? That sounds quite good. Other times it was just like, what's wrong with the other 20 things you can choose from? That that was something that I that put me off of later versions of Masquerade and Keeping into it was just the oversaturation of lore and clans and having to have so many books with so many different things going on. What was wrong with the original like seven clans? It's like there's plenty of opportunities to to play a unique character in any one of those. You can have two Gangrel who could be completely different, right? Oh, to be different, you must have different disciplines. <laughs> to be honest, Matt's written most of those books, so we probably should ask him about it. <laughs> so, so that's actually a good question. So one of the things I raised in the first episode was by the time 1998 rolled about and Vampire went into its revised edition, there was a, a couple, of, couple of things that motivated that for White Wolf. I think one of them was the financial difficulty they had got into at that point and it was okay we need to shake this up and put something new out there so that that people buy into this and i think the other thing was second edition was getting slightly long in the tooth and they were just reprinting old stuff that had been done before you know there was new editions of the various chicago books had come out there was various cities by night that were, were, were reprinted so they wanted to shake it up and they introduced revise and as part of that there came this shift of we're going to be really intensely focused on our meta plot, meaning the big story in the background that White Wolf is is writing. I don't know whether or not they had a plan at that point that they were going to end it all and this story was going to get there or whether it was just we're going to write this really cool story and you can put it in your games or, or not put it in your games. But one of the things I found about the meta plot was similar to what Steve said, there was a, an awful lot of books that, that came out. Like when I did the, the podcast for Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay and I did the history section, I talked about nearly every supplement they'd ever released. It's impossible to do that for Vampire because there was like over 200 released. You've seen Matt's library. Yeah. Uh, he has them all. I, over the, 600 when you take all the game lines into account. Wow. That's the crazy thing that you get. And this is coming to the next point, which is as a storyteller, you find yourself in situations, and Jason, we, we had this exact thing happen to us in our game, where a player will go and buy a book that you as a storyteller have not seen and then come to you and go, I want to do this thing now. It's in yeah. this book. Therefore, it has to be alive and real in the world. And you think, I, I didn't even know that book was, was out yet. Yeah, I agree, but I'm not without sin because I remember buying the Brugeau, the clan book, the vet, the Zombra clan book, all the little clan books and going, cool, can I have this power or this combo or this? So I've, I've done it too. So I oh, yeah. a bit of, there's a lot of sympathy there. Well, I'm not... Not wider than white, by any stretch of the imagination. I will say, I do not think that the meta plot thing was bad. I liked the fact that as a storyteller, I could buy a new book. And I, I did this with a lot of the books. I buy it and go, wow, that is really cool. I want to put that into my game. You remember, Jason, we got a whole ton of ideas from the book Midnight Siege. Our fellow storyteller, she bought that. And we sat around and we were like, wow, this book's great. We're going to use that. We're going to use that. We're going to use that. 
there was even one thing in that book, Matt, that we went, Matt would love this. We're going to put that in for him. But always looking to please our players. That's always exactly looking to please our players, yeah. I think when it became a bit of a cornerstone to how a lot of people set their games, it kind of defined the canvas that it became a bit too invasive. And one of the briefs we had when we did the 20th anniversary books was that we were told, this is kind of the situation, kind of the, state, the status quo but it's not going to advance. You can bounce off those elements as much as you want, but there's no timeline progression here. There's no story narrative that's going to be weaved between the different supplements. It's just this is the de facto setting. When when you use it sparingly, bits and pieces here and there, then that's fine. And I think a lot of people can then, that have read the books and got invested in it, can then kind of have that appreciative nod and smile towards it and go, hey, this is, this is the world I know. But it doesn't have to dictate where your story goes because it can be far too invasive if you take it by the letter of the law. I think the ultimate example of that was when, and we'll get onto this later, but when we released the Gehenna book, I started up a LARP a few years after Gehenna had happened. And one of the people who shall remain nameless, who was originally going to play, said to me, but you can't really start a LARP now because they've ended it all. No, they've ended the game. It doesn't mean you can't play the game anymore. It's not a real event that's happened. <laughs> Everything to do with all that. All the vampires are dead. Yeah, they're all there are dead. There no vampires anymore. You could only Go play, play something else. You said, Matt, about Vampire 20th anniversary rings true. I've, I got that 20th anniversary edition. And the thing I like about it is it's got little call-outs throughout, little sidebars saying, if you want to play in this period of time, this thing can happen. If you want to just keep it you know, original, that's fine. This, this, this can happen too. And it's it's almost acknowledging the fact that you have this huge library of books available that you own every single copy of, and you could draw on any of those elements. You don't need to see it as this story with a finite starting point and a start and a finite end point. It's almost like a, a toolbox that you can pick from, but it's a very rich and detailed toolbox in which there's every conceivable reality within it. Jason, you mentioned doing things like buying the various clan book. What were your guys' favourite supplements? Clan book Brugia, clan book Zumichi. Everything else is well, irrelevant. Our, 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 listeners, our listeners might not know why you have such a passion for those, Jason. They'll learn. So, I mean, yeah, clan book Brugia. Brugia, you know, they're faster than you, they're stronger than you, and they're better looking than you. They're pretty cool. And they don't even have a clan floor. Right? <laughs> um, yeah, Tempo is not a clan floor, right? You know, Zamisi are cool because just all kinds of really twisted, shape shifty, sh- uh, flesh shifting kind of stuff you can do. It's pretty disturbed stuff, which which appeals. I, I definitely remember having the the Ventru clan book clearly because I was a Ventru, so it just made sense. Ooh, and storyteller, ooh. <sighs> shut up. Yeah, that, one of the better clans. Like punching Jason. people in the face too much. Yeah, yeah Jason doesn't so, understand higher styles of play. Jason, <laughs> if, if he can't hit it, he doesn't know quite what to do with it. And I know I picked up the guide to the Sabat ahead of the Sabat game, and we had the Storyteller's Handbook. But I think that getting getting hold of a copy of the Book of Nod was kind of cool. That was that's kind of an interesting read. That whole kind of creation myth of vampires, the story of Cain, and all that kind of stuff that kind of backstory I found really interesting. Yeah, those little books they released, the the backstory ones, had no rules in them. I absolutely loved those. I I think I bought all of those for all the, the various game lines because they just gave the world that extra bit of depth and, and, and flavour that you didn't necessarily get in the books that were really rules-intensive. And I know certainly t- towards the end of um, a lot of their game lines, they started releasing books that were almost... 80% fiction and 20% uh, rules, which 
which really appealed to me. I, I like that. It's a lot easier to imagine the world where you can see it through the eyes of the people who are writing it and go, okay, this is what they intended, rather than you know sticking together your own vague hodgepodge of ideas. You mentioned that the, the Sabat guide, the revised guide to the Sabat is by far my favorite vampire supplement mainly because it gave the Sabat that image makeover that they desperately needed from first and second edition. I mean, if you look at first and second edition, it's basically someone's watched Near Dark and said, right, we could do that for vampires and let's stick some demons in there and make a lot of kind of really bendy, freaky people in there. It didn't really do anything. They were just like bad guy antagonists who would occasionally burn the city down. That's not very imaginative. Whereas you read the guide to the Sabat and you're like, wow, this, these guys are... are f- a, they're a fundamentalist army. They've got all these zealots. They've got these inhuman ways of thinking. Oh, and they also seem to be the good guys, which you didn't really get from reading the uh, the, the early editions. I absolutely love that book. It, it's what made me want to run a Sabat game, which we ended up doing. I think it, it did change. Yeah, I think when the, the Sabat from being the boogeyman in the corner to being actually something you could play a game for, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean. When we played, you know, the Camarilla LARP, it was the kind of view of the Sabat was that kind of boogeyman. But then when, you know, when you got hold of that book and, and you read through that and then, you know, what we went on to do that LARP, I mean, it was those, the characters in that LARP, it was pretty eye-opening in terms of the variety and the, the kind of complexity and depth of those characters that wasn't just, yeah, we turn up and we trash it. You know, it was there was so much more going on, and and that book certainly helped a lot in in setting that scene. I think. And the interesting thing I found about the the characters that people wrote for that game, the people who went into it and wrote the big nasty monster characters, didn't get as much out of it as the people who wrote the characters that had a bit of depth to them. I mean, Matt, Jason and I often talk about the character you used to play in that game. And he went on a massive growth path from being some poor soul that happened to be out walking with his girlfriend and he get attacked by the Sabat, embraced, buried, and then turned into a weapon of war and eventually became very involved in the spirituality of the sect. That's a big difference to some of the other people. Like, yeah, I'm going to play a massive gangrel with claws and he, and he, and he kills stuff and he, he's got loads of physical stats. Like, okay, good. You're going to get a lot out of this game. And, and, and he's so cold, he can't be affected by presence or dominate. Oh, yeah. Don't. That's a flaw, right? That's a flaw. I was, I was thinking of uh, dear old Lyndon Davenport the other day. Yeah, it was def- definitely the best experience I've had with had with Vampire, uh, hands down. Of course it was. We reffed it. <laughs> Thank you. Actually, that, that's that's pretty cool. I, I don't mean to be arrogant. That is pretty cool. Thank you. Yeah, no, it is, it's very nice to, to hear that. And the, the very interesting thing about that game was when Jason and I started that, we had a very kind of definitive idea of we wanted to do a beginning, middle and end. And we spent a lot of time talking about that before we started. It was a tough decision to end it when we did. But the nicest thing about ending it was the various people who were like, Okay, can we not just play a couple more games? Are we, are we really finished? And like, no, leave your characters where they are. People will have fond memories of the characters because it's ended in this uh, particular way. Whereas if we just carried on, I mean, I've played in laps before that just carry on, carry on, carry on, and then they just die. That's never a, a great experience for anyone. I'm a big fan of having a story arc, right? Oh, absolutely. So whether it's whether it's a single season, whether it's a single episode, the whole thing, you know, if you take what we're we doing this week, and that's a single episode arc. Then what are we doing over this multi 
week, week period. Okay, so that's a, a story arc, and then you've got a, a massive campaign arc as well. So there's no there's no harm in those things being big, but just having an idea and having them bounded. There's nothing that says you can't start the second season, right? It, it, it becomes like TV. So one of the things we've mentioned uh, previously is how, how Vampire is a very different game from, from other games in terms of, I think, mainly this, the psychology behind it. And that's something you see in a lot of uh, White Wolf books. I still think one of the most innovative things I've ever done was with Wraith, with the concept of you, you play two characters. You play your own and you play someone else's dark side. Uh, but Vampire had a lot of that in terms of both the humanity system. And I think it was one of the first games kind of properly deal with the mental illness aspect. I mean, Call of Cthulhu had insanity, but with Vampire, there was the acknowledgement of you had this one clan who were all driven irredeemably insane by their embrace and be turned into a vampire. The problem is... Yeah, the problem is a lot of people then... Especially in this day and age, when you think about how conscious people are of mental illness, the amount of people that would take this view that mental illness and vampire was hilarious and they'd play these insane characters as wearing bunny slippers and talking to a sock puppet. Um, Sense of the rant. Yeah. The first edition Malkavian clan book didn't help it. No. I'm saying that for one thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. When, when it worked, it worked. Um, but it had, I think, you pretty much... If you remove the Malkavian clan from the equation and then just looked at the effect of reducing humanity on sanity, that would be a pretty good, uh, pretty good road and a pretty good uh, story to tell. But yeah, Malkavians did more harm than good when trying to trying to address that theme in games. As I say, particularly because of the laughable first uh, the first Ed Malkavian clan book, full of its crayon drawings and uh, very kidicizing of. Uh, of mental illness i know a few people in particular really got um very annoyed with the portrayal and refused to play the game because of that one book alone and uh, i think there was various discussions at one point even a consideration it may have been before uh, fifth ed came out where they were saying about why don't we just delete the clan entirely and carry uh, carry on the game without them but just keep the idea of the the impact of the erosion of sanity as your humanity declines. And I, I think that would have been a pretty good choice, but I know that completionists out there would say, but where did the client go? How are you going to put that into the meta plot? What are you, what are you doing? This, what are you doing to my game? I remember a LARP that I played in once and almost double-taking when I was introduced to the people who were in the Malkavian clan who introduced themselves as the Fluffy Bunny Squad, the primogen walked around with a Furby that he talked to. <laughs> Did you destroy them? Actually, that was actually the game where I then went away and wrote a Malkavian character and me and the other one, Malkavian, who wasn't part of the Fluffy Bunny squad, systematically killed the other ones off one by one. You're a bad man. Yeah. Well. It's, it's interesting to see how society has changed so much that we now, we can look at that now and say, okay, look, they, they made some really bad, choices with with their portrayal of mental health and and a clan based around kind of madness and all that kind of stuff but it it also feels like there's there's a great opportunity like matt you're saying there you know they could have deleted the clan entirely and gone a different way but it feels like there's an opportunity there now my awareness of mental health issues now as i'm considerably older and and how that impacts people and society at large, and like could really feed into some interesting characters. Um, I think when you're younger, um, you don't have that view of the world, but 
there's a there's a there's an opportunity for a game system to to really explore that um, and educate people in doing it as well if it does it well yeah it's doing well right that's the key that's the key because the the two extremes that you got um and certainly i saw in, in most games was you'd have somebody who was wacky and crazy and talked to sock puppets and his idea of mental illness was he talked in a childish voice or you'd have someone who was a sociopath. There was never anyone who just had something that debilitated them. You know, there wasn't somebody who was just a normal person, but with a mental illness that made life really difficult. And it could be because people aren't comfortable with that. And it's probably not a lot of fun to play someone who's genuinely depressed or, you know, somebody who's genuinely got schizophrenia or something along those lines. But people only really gravitated to the two extremes. And it could be because people don't actually understand what they're doing with it. A lot of these derangements were, as they called them, were given a you know paragraph write-up. And it was like, you're a megalomaniac. You will always try and take control. Okay, cool. That sounds good. I wanted to be in charge anyway. You know, it's not really a, a flaw. I think that name alone, derangements, really doesn't help at all. It's like, no. you know, affliction maybe. Or, you know, something, you know... That, that properly sells it, but derangement just yeah, it's it's wacky, it's crazy. Yeah, it's it's not very sensitive. Now, Jason, I'll let you tell this because I know that um, you'd be itching to tell it. When Jason and I started our Sabat Lark, one of the, we had a big session where various people got together to make characters, because one of the things with a Sabat game is you have to be in a pack with other characters. It's more about making a group concept rather than individuals. As a set up to what Jason's about to tell you, there was one fella playing the game who very quickly wrote up a character and then handed us this kind of minimaxed monstrosity. And we looked at it and said, um, you've taken two derangements. Uh, you've taken paranoid and schizophrenic. Are you sure you want to do that? And his answer was, yes, I'm taking them for the points. Jason, I will let you... Red rag to a ball. Just a red rag to a ball. Isn't it? I mean, if you've got a serious character concept and part of the character concept is the mental illness that they suffer, we, we will support you in that. But when you turn around and say you want it for the points, just before I go into this, one of the things I would say is that I think the problem with people when they did Mount Kagans and, and other ca- and characters of mental illness before is they hooked the entire character around the mental illness. It took me a long time before I played a Malkavian character in a Sabat game in, in the town where I live. And um, it's actually the most recent character I've ever played. So, you know, it took a long time to get around to it because I didn't think I could do it right. And that was the problem. And then all these people come and say, I have this derangement and this is my character. And I turn around and I have this character and he's Malkavian. What derangement should I take? Because the character wasn't based on the derangement. The derangement was a fracture in him rather than the concept of it. Anyway, so, guy comes to us, two derangements, fantastic paranoid schizophrenic, and he wants two extra points, which, let's face it, is a session. You know, he's literally getting one game's head start on everybody else. So, I came to the first game, and he was actually late to turn up, which was really convenient, because we basically briefed the entire room and said, right, when this guy arrives, his character is paranoid and schizophrenic. So at some point in the evening, I want each of you to wander over to him and tell him the darkest thing you're going to do to his character. But I want the rest of you to ignore it because it didn't really happen. 
he had a great game. He had a great game. He came to us afterwards. He was like, that was brilliant. I really enjoyed it. I really did enjoy it. So, but you were, you were doing it. It was, it was all this. So I'm going to buy it off. I'm going to buy the floor off. And I was like, you know, you can buy it off, but you need to get treatment and you need to get, you need to, you know, develop as a character before you get this treatment. And it's really hard to trust the psychotherapist when he's telling you he's going to kill you and spread your entrails across the room and decorate his office with it. Yeah. I remember that. He, he lasted, he lasted quite a while actually, but, but he's insanity got the, got the end of him. Yeah, I think after a few games, it was, can I, can I play something else? I don't like this very much. We were bad, man. How are those two extra points looking now? And it, that's actually, it's one of the things that I find with Vampire, more than most games, is people tend to have very strong memories of things that happened in games. And I think because a lot of it is much more personal than, I mean, in D&D, you'll have things like, oh, there was this awesome battle that time and you know, we, we took down the, the Hydra and Jason lost his character, but he did a heroic sacrifice. I remember I had a game of Legends of the Five Rings years ago where I actually sacrificed my character so the other guys could escape. And those are all good and they're, they're poignant, but there seems to be much more of that in Vampire because there's so much more human interaction. A lot of the time, you don't genuinely resolve things by you know, beating the other guy up. Although Jason has done that on quite a few occasions. Um, yeah, a few times. But people have these these very sort of strong memories. For me, the and it's not a, it's not a specific detailed memory. It's more of a an emotional thing that you know I have distinct memories of when people and it's generally at the top of the the, the pile of when people would try and oust the prince, or when you know they were building up to the point where they were going to. And then, and then you get to that climax where somebody makes their move, and it is just you are like, if if you're if you're the person trying to oust the prince, you're literally almost shaking. And I think if you're, you just don't know what's going to happen. You don't know who's who's aware of what, who's going to stab who in the back, how this is going to play out. And it is so tense and so like, and everybody's in it at that moment. And just the fantastic role playing that happens out of that and you go home at the end of the night and you just like it's the like the adrenaline's up here like just course it and you get home and you're just like wow that that was just amazing i mean that's they're the bigger moments there's there's plenty of small moments too but those are the ones that really stick like i just i just distinctly remember feeling like on edge and and overwhelmed and yeah just amazing stuff i think it comes down again to what mentioned previously about it's suited to a longer term game that something becomes more memorable the more investment you have in it and i think that investment is directly proportionate to the length of game in a lot of cases it's by thinking to a a parallel example things like some of my most poignant memories from call of cthulhu come from the major campaigns because they were such longer games with much more but epic stories that you really got your teeth into. I think one of the one of the memories that really stuck with me was again one of those almost like linchpin moments in the the MK by Night game, where it was just starting a regular court. There was nothing that was particularly different about that any one night, but then it was just the uh, the storyteller going round to each member of the um, or the high council court at the top of the room, uh, while they were sat on these chairs and just each one falling silent as that they'd uh, inadvertently been staked by the trap that had been set up on the chair uh, by the previous prince, uh, where just all of them had been staked where they sat, and the rest of the room was kind of looking around going, 
okay, what's happening here? And then the rest of the evening descending into chaos as it became a massive power grab, thinking, lunch is on the table! Some of my most interesting memories were really the smaller personal moments with bonding with other characters and just investing. I mean, you could you could have that in other games, like Dean stuff like that occasionally but it was never the focus as as you guys mentioned like this is a it's an interactive storytelling experience and you know it's it's the focus of the game and and that those are always the things that stick out to me like the the combat moments or whatever happened but they they, they, they're not they were never as memorable as you know the times when you had those interesting conversations or or gotten to deep philosophical debates or political shenanigans going back and forth between different people those are the types of experiences that I remember remember the best because it made me flex my role playing more than anything else. And that you don't get that when you're doing a hack and slash. You, th- there's those moments are sort of like they can happen, but they're few and far between. And like it, it takes a lot of effort to take a D and D campaign to that level, whereas it sort of happens almost naturally and over the course of uh, of any World of Darkness storytelling game. Yeah, I, I think that's that's true. And similar to both what you and Matt have said, I generally end up running games rather than playing in them. And for me as a as a storyteller, the big payoff is those long arcs that eventually come to something. I mean, I know that Jason and I, when we ran our Sabat game, we seeded a lot of stuff right at the beginning. Seeing that come to fruition and then seeing how it then affects the players is wonderful. It's very, very satisfying uh, seeing that. One of the things that I used to find as a player, the few occasions that I played, similar to what you said, Steve, is the those little moments of kind of personal interaction. Sometimes in a game as psychological and dark as Vampire, it's the moments of levity and sometimes unintentional unintentional levity that really stand out and Jason will remember this one we were playing a game years ago the refs were running the standard the Sabat coming to attack storyline and there was a player in that game who was playing the the kind of angsty loner gangrel who traveled from city to city and had all his his, his wisdom on his travels and he, oh, the scald. yeah and, and and he he appeared set himself up as I'm this big expert on the Sabat now, we assumed as players this was something the refs had put into the game because we'd not met this guy before. Turns out it wasn't. It was just him being a self-appointed expert. So Jason and I were responsible for this Sabat threat. So we said, well, this, this, this is the man. We need to talk to this guy. By responsible, we weren't the Sabat threat. Oh, that, yeah, we were, that makes yeah. it sound like we were the Sabat threat. We were yeah, sort of dealing, dealing with, with the Sabat threat. threat. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we get our our... our crew together and we pull this fella into the room like right you're obviously the big expert on the sabbat you know tell us you know what do we need to know and he looks very pensive and the thing about this guy is he did this weird faux american accent for his character i'd try to make it as kind of vaguely gravelly as possible so we're sitting there waiting for this massive plot dump from the sts and he says yeah if i know the sabbat and i do when they come, they'll come at night. And there's a pause. And I'm like, well, of course they'll come at night. They're vampires. And then the whole thing just descended into absolute chaos. But I used to love little little moments like that that kind of broke the oftentimes very um, intense play. But also the very intense play could be a lot of fun. There was a, 
was one time in the, the game that Matt's mentioned where I absolutely let loose at another player uh, and called him out in front of everyone and went completely nuts. And I'm normally a very kind of calm and reserved person, uh, not particularly shouty. You did quite a lot, right? Oh, I went absolutely mental in this this game. To the extent this other player left the room and I went out afterwards and he's outside smoking and shaking. And I'm like, I'm really sorry. That was all just in character. And he's like, all right, okay. You're looking sort of fearfully in, in my direction. That's, I'm sure it's something you have a six foot four Glaswegian barrel well, no, no, down no, no. at him. is probably quite scary for most people. There, there could be that, yes. The small problems with the social LARP aspect of Vampire as it plays out in that it's, it's great in lots of ways, but it, depending on the type of person that you are, it can make it more challenging, I think, to to cope with certain scenarios because of who you are, not necessarily because of what your character's like. And so it becomes important to kind of make use of the rules at the right times and know those rules. But it's, yeah, I can, I think for, for as much fun as I had, I, I do wonder if like, if I was maybe a way, way, way more introverted person, would I be able to play the character that I did or, you know, those kind of things. And, and so it throws up its own challenges as a, as a lot. And I wonder if the, the, the tabletop obviously gives people a lot more freedom to perhaps play characters that they maybe couldn't in a lot. Yeah. It's something that I, oh, I say I, Jason and I both wrestled with this as, as storytellers for a game. You have a system in the game for, for physical combat. You're never going to have players that actually physically fight each other. So it doesn't matter what someone's like in real life, physically speaking. They have whatever traits their character has. Likewise, you have social and mental traits. So we don't expect players, for example, to be able to figure out an occult ritual. They've got their mental traits and their, their various skills to sort that out. There's also this huge bucket of social traits that people have. And those are normally used when someone invokes a discipline or a power of some description. Should we let people use the social traits to simulate the same sort of things they would do physically? So, for example, you know, I want to punch someone. I have, I have no training in, in hand-to-hand combat in real life, but my character might. So I would say, okay, I'm going to you know, make a physical challenge. I'm going to use my brawl skill and, and try and take that guy down. What if you're a very introverted person, but you want to persuade someone else of your your point of view or you want to intimidate someone socially should you be allowed to make the social challenge and just say okay well i have more social traits than you therefore you have to do my bidding or is that where you say well you do have to role play that because we i've seen it before where somebody has given me a character concept and he wants to play this like slit x mi6 interrogator and i know the guy in real life and he's a lovely guy i'm like there is no way he can pull this off this, this guy can't look me in the eye when he talks to me, but who am I to say you can't play that because you're introverted? It shouldn't be that the extroverts get to play all the cool social characters. It's a, it's a, I, I'm not actually going anywhere with this. It's just a conundrum that I've always kind of wrestled with. It's, you've, got to, uh, you've got to allow it, right? But it's a legit question, though. I actually, I yeah. actually agree. I think about that for myself when I pick characters. Is I, That seems like an interesting character concept, but I can, can I actually pull it off? Like, yeah. can I actually role play that character? Do I feel like my personality, which is pretty introverted a lot of the time, can I actually pull off these things? Or am I limited in the kind of characters that I can play role playing full stop because I'm just 
don't feel, especially in LARP, it's magnified, right? With tabletop, it's maybe a little easier, but you know, in a LARP, you're dealing with not just your small group of people that you're probably close friends with, but with a bunch of people that you maybe don't know nearly as well. And are maybe not going to give you the, the the latitude to um to dig into that or or have to like grow with that. So there's, I mean, there's also very... you make a really good point there, Steve, because there's a physical aspect to LARP as well. Jason's kind of joked six about that four, earlier. I, yeah, I'm six foot four. I'm fairly well built. I would always make a point of buying a lot of physical traits, not because I was going to use them, but because people would respond to that in real life. They would assume that my character was massive and in a larp you're, you're kind of lumbered with that i you know i can't play it would be it would be unfair for me to be physically intimidating to someone yet my character's got three physical traits so that that wouldn't that not stop other people three social traits great leaders uh, yeah okay well we'll get to that one because that, <laughs> that would be naming specific players well i suppose just as an example what jason's making is we had a character in one of our games who made this incredibly uplifting speech and everyone was like, wow, great. We're going to get on this side. And we had to kind of time out and go, okay, this guy has got three social traits that would not have been delivered. Two negative co- social traits. Yeah. And also two negative social traits as well. The guy's basically a drooling imbecile. It's because I think players get caught up in the moment and they're like, well, I'm just role-playing my character. I'm like, well, you're not. You have to role-play what's on the what's on the sheet in front of you. You've, get, you've made this guy a bumbling blabbermouth, somebody who's who can barely get a sentence out. Yeah, you're standing there like Spartacus. Yeah, it's, it's, it's difficult. You've got, you've got, I, I think Steve's right. You, you, everybody always looks at, you know, what do I? What can I play? What, what am I going to be rubbish at, et cetera, et cetera. I have a relatively forceful personality at times. No. Um, so... You know, I, I went through a whole stage of going, oh, I can't make it out. I, I, I end up like Prince after my third game and, and Cardinal of Western Europe or one, but all kinds of stuff. I always end up gravitating towards positions. And I started making characters that were not going to get to positions. And then I realized I didn't actually enjoy them. So I started writing characters that did want positions again. And then I started enjoying the game again. So th- there's a combination of not only can I play it, the answer is well, yes or no, but but also should I play it and and should I just give somebody else a go? And no, Sodom is what I say. You know, <laughs> you, if if everybody out there wants power, just go for it, right? That, that, that's the way it should work. If if nobody if if everybody's writing characters that don't want to be in position of power, that's a really dull game. Yeah, and and actually, to me, like that that power play like aspect of like if it's only just one person is really boring and dull to watch a game like that. Having rivals exactly at each other like that's like that's like part of the secret sauce of the whole game. You you, you judge a man's worth by his enemies, right? So if <laughs> yes. your enemies are rubbish, you're rubbish, right? What you want is really good enemies. Set yourself up. Well, I'm pretty sure Sun Tzu wrote that. I'm if he didn't, to... I'm claiming it. I'll write my own book. So the art it... of war two. Sequel. The revenge. So I'm, I'm going to put a contentious subject here. So it's something um, that we talked a little bit about previously, but it's something that I think storytellers of White Wolf games struggle with more than any other game, and it's magnified in the LARP. And I keep, we keep mentioning LARP because Vampire is so suited to LARP play more than I think any other game I've ever played. More than anything, absolutely. And that is that in amongst your stable of wonderful players who want to role-play characters and have great concepts is the player who just looks at how many points they can get and what sort of threshing machine 
they can put together. And I think it may be because Vampire in particular doesn't so much focus on these concepts that it probably stands out so much when it does happen. Like D&D, ultimately you're focused on a character who is going to be effective in a combat situation because a lot of D&D's conflict is combat. If you're playing one of the old school games, like Old School Essentials, that is your entire being. Is You're going down to a dungeon, you're killing things, and your whole character is based around how effective you are in combat. In Vampire, that's not necessarily the case. Yet you have these cases when people, despite being told this is a social game, put together a perfectly legal character, but one which is just this threshing machine. You need to cater for all types of players. So, you know, I'm sorry, just because I might not want to play that character, and I know you don't want to play that character, we have, um, but doesn't mean it's any less valid, right? You know? If... if if you sit there, set up a game, and you've got all this highfalutin kind of ideals about what you want to do, and the the rise of you know the ancients and Gehenna, and it's all going to be horrible and introspective, and, and somebody wants to beat up shit. I guess it depends on how much it affects other players. So, That's what I'm getting to, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it comes down to society. It's like, it's, it's like, is what I'm doing negatively affecting the gameplay of everybody else? Wants to and how much you have to pivot the game to accommodate that one special person yeah, yeah. wants to be a combat monster whereas the game that you're trying to run is largely socially based right i'd argue that it's how much you have to tailor your game to take to, to go with any like focused character you know somebody wants to be really focused on rituals and stuff in this that game how much you can tailor your games allowed to happen how much is somebody going to be a cult in your camarilla game how much do you tailor for that to happen and so forth um Good refs, Taylor, do they? Please, I think. I like the idea of, of what Steve I mean, said about, like, about the enforcement aspect of it, that there are a lot of tools built into White Wolf settings to almost have the non-violence setting, like Vampire has its Elysium, that you know, you're not allowed to violate that. Heaven knows we've all played in enough games where it gets violated because somebody decides to have a coup. But... I think one of the, the nicest examples I saw of that was in the Victorian game, Jason, that you used to run, where I was playing the, the, the Venture Prince, and there was a character in there who was a, a Bruja who w- wanted to solve problems by, by hitting things. In a straight one-on-one fight, uh, a Bruja is probably always going to beat a Venture. There was a wonderful moment in that game where Jason's mechanism for enforcing this was a single discipline power he'd given my character and this Bruja eventually made his move and decided that he'd had enough of me and he wanted to be prince and he comes storming down in the middle of court draws some magical sword he's got and and, and, and whacks me with it and this power I had was a fortitude power that said yeah you basically you shrug off the damage and anything hit you breaks so I sat there, sort of stony-faced. He hits me with this thing. It breaks in two. He looks shot. And then I just turned around to the character who was playing the sheriff and I'm like, detain him. And it was a wonderful... It, this could have been this huge, big brawl. And it wasn't. It was just a wonderful, simple message of, you know, violence will not be tolerated here. But I think you still, you still sometimes get it where it's almost like the off-scene stuff that happens. And Matt, you've probably still got PTSD about this, but... There was a game that Matt and I used to play in and I convinced Matt to come along to this game and on Matt's first night there, so he's got a brand new character, 
I've been playing a long-time character in this game, so I kind of Matt doesn't know anyone else at the time, so I kind of take him under uh, my wing. And two for other... you, Matt. For you. Well, he didn't have a chance to get traumatized because two other characters basically took us and so- some other people aside, and then proceeded to just thresh us, just demolished us. Because I indeed remember that game being uh, trapped in a big ball of black. Yes. Yeah, it was a dreadful, dreadful experience. But again, that's where you've got two players who the refs have indulged and said, yep, you guys can fulfill your your power fantasies. And we basically had to sa- stand and listen to some guy in the rate combat for about 45 minutes. And at the end of it, we told, yeah, your characters are dead. Great. Sounds like a lot of fun. It, it was oh, amazing. Wait, no, it's like a no. of a new introduction to a new game to a new, yeah. a new player, right? That sounds mm. like the best. Well, in fairness, in fairness to the refs, one of them went absolutely nuts and you know kicked kicked these players out. And I think it was largely that thing. This was Matt's first game, and his experience of this first game was, yeah, bigger players can steamroller over you. So it was a good decision they made, and they were saying, oh, retroactively we can bring your characters back, and we're like, well. We can't because there's been no. repercussions of all this other stuff. Yeah. So there's always wimey, wimey stuff doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, that, that brings up an interesting question. One that I've read about doing some more recent reading about vampire LARPs. So we've talked about the the combat crazy gangrel bruja who go in and get into the thrashing mode. What about the social disciplines and people hmm. losing agency because of crazy high, you know? presence with majesty or dominate like do you feel like that is a as because you guys are way more experienced than refs of both larps and the tabletop storytellers do you feel like that that has been abused in your experience to a degree or is this thing you've been able to keep under control or like i'd love to hear some horror stories or uh, other that with regards to that i've never really seen it abused if i if anything i've seen it give really good opportunities for people to to role play but it ultimately depends on who's doing it to whom you'll get people who are these combat threshing machines who i think they're the ones who respond really badly to it that they don't like it happening because they're they very much view the game as well because i'm the biggest and strongest person here um, I can therefore do anything I want. And therefore, when they get their agency taken away from them, they respond quite badly to it. And I've seen that happen a couple of times. Of, oh, well, that's not fair. I'm like, dude, it's perfectly fair. They just happen to have more presence. I know personally that I've had games before where I've been hit with a presence power, and it's really good fun to roleplay. You completely flip what you're doing in your head. You start acting differently, and people are like, what the hell is wrong with him? He hated her a minute ago. And now he's, you know, basically being an errand boy. So I think it can be a lot of fun if handled correctly. I don't know what you guys' experience are of it. I think it depends on exactly you said who it is and who's doing it and for what reason. I mean, for me, for me, the whole thing, I would, I think it's good to lose agency and be told what to do because I don't rebel against that. That's part of the powers of the game. You know, vampires look in the eye. You will be my. You will go and get this item for me, and then off they go. What part, right, of, Me- what part of Mexico is that vampire from? Yeah, that wasn't Mexico. That was Cuba. And, uh, it was, but but dodgy accents aside, the fact is that mind control is a discipline, right? It's a 
proper discipline and multiple clans have got access to it. Presence, the, the manipulation of people's feelings and stuff is a discipline, right? It's every much as right to be in the game as potence and celerity and, and it should be used. And I, I like when my character is put in very difficult situations where I'm damned if I do and damned if I don't. So yeah, absolutely. I, I think it, it needs to be used more. Um, the amount of, you know, people should be using Transman and you should love the Brugia and you should love the Venture and you should love the Torreador. And then when the Nosferatu walks in the door, eh, you know, it's just, why would you, you don't want anything to do with him. Um, it, it, it's, it's part, if you're just allowed to do everything you wanted to do in the first place, you might as well just write a, a, a script, you know? Yeah. There's actually a very good section in the revised, not the revised book, it's the Storytellers Handbook. And one of the FAQs is, isn't Dominate really powerful? And the answer given is, well, the Venture and La Sombra wouldn't be very good leaders if it wasn't. And leaders use presence. No. Real, real, real leaders use Dominate and Potence as a proper leader. But yeah, it, it, it depends how it's handled. Also, it has to be handled cleverly because if you just go around dominating people and they'll remember afterwards you've done it, so if you're getting that big lug of a Bruja to do your every bidding, eventually he's going to get you when you can't dominate him or can't use presence, and he's going to make his displeasure felt. So it's it's about using the, I think, clever tactics to do it, like working it into conversation and using like the forgetful mind power to make sure that people don't remember what you're Or you blood bonds. Or blood bonds. Yeah, blood bonds are fun. Blood bonds are fun. Yeah, I think those, those have a particular nice touch to them that at least the player can still react to the situation instead you are told to go and do this and you actually as a player can go and do said action i think the one double-edged sword in that kind of power set that i always wince a little bit at in how it can be used is dread gaze because if you put that on um, someone in the middle of a court that person has to leave for quite an extended period of time and can't be in your presence well if that person's in the main room that doesn't give you as a player very much to do because you can't go in the main room, you can't be in their presence and in their vicinity. But as a defensive tool, I think it's fantastic, because, hey, your attacker just suddenly pisses off and goes and runs away into the distance. But it takes away agency in a more fundamental manner when it's done in a kind of, well, I don't want you to be around here, so... It, go, it go puts away. you outside of the, the game, basically, yeah. doesn't it? It sends you away. I mean, if well, I say... Like giving someone you, a red card, Jay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Rather than sin binning, for example, it is sin binning probably. But I mean, the, if I say, uh, Matt, look into my eyes, you're going to do X, Y, and Z, hmm. you're still in the game, right? Precisely. You, I've just got. You may not be doing what you want to do, but you're still in the game. Whereas, you know, something like that, you're you're out of the game. Go and take a timeout for ten minutes, fifteen minutes. Or that do that like riddle fantastique as well is quite a harsh one where it's sit here for the next hour and a half and try and figure, figure out a riddle yeah that's fun yeah <laughs> uh, where, where's that from Matt? <laughs> <laughs> oh i think you uh, you mentioned about uh, clans that you didn't want people to, uh, didn't want people playing <laughs> uh-huh. yeah there's a reason you know i think the for me those those kind of powers uh, and the social aspect of it becomes it can become it's it's totally about who who you're using them on and how they want to play the game um, and whether they're prepared to embrace having to do things that they don't want to do. And there are plenty of players, I think, that don't like the idea of doing things that they don't want to do and being forced to do things that they don't want to do. And so may, you know, 
something that you use on them that should have a longer lasting effect is maybe something that they may instantly react to and then forget when you're not around kind of thing and and those kind of things so you've got it's there's a lot of i think there's a lot of trust you've got to have particularly in that larp setting where you know you want everyone to understand that you can have fun by being put in difficult situations Mm -hmm. where you you have to do stuff that that your character doesn't like there is a lot of fun to be had in doing that. You just need to embrace it and 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 learn how to enjoy those situations. Yeah, what, one of my favourite characters I played was actually blood-bonded to another player. The thing that amused me most about this character was we played a previous, almost like a duo, where her character ended up falling in with mine and I just made her life hell because it was my character's raison d'etre. And it's what you do. Not all characters I do that with, just some of them. But once we'd finished with those characters, I said, okay, look, I made your life hellish with that. Um, if we play another duo, I'll let you pick some terrible condition that I have to exist under. And I remember Jason was there at the time, and she said, all right, you can be blood-bonded to me then. And for those of you listening who aren't familiar, the blood bond effectively puts you in a sort of very extreme fatal attraction mode with that other character. And Jason looked over and went, why do you think that's going to be a punishment for him? And we then carried on playing this character. I think after a few games, she very quickly got the message that this is in no way a punishment. Ian is reveling in this far too much. Because when you, you get people who play blood bonds as, oh, I really like that person. It's not. The blood bond is, that person is my world. If they don't acknowledge me, my whole reason for existing is crashing down. But the best thing about the blood bond, you play this person and you're fanatically devoted to that other person and you you, you want to do anything for them. But you could temporarily suspend its effects by spending willpower in the game. And when you suspend the effects, you realize this person is a monster that has bound you to them for eternity. That player's face, the first moment I spent willpower and made my feelings abundantly clear as to what this was, was absolutely wonderful. Again, I'm playing a character who pretty much zero agency. She would tell me to go and do stuff. I would go and do it. And even if it was terrible stuff, I I still had to, to do it. But it was an awful lot of fun. And I think that's where the, the role-playing part of it comes in. I think if you're not inclined to find fun in doing that sort of stuff, you're probably not going to want to play those characters or have those things happen to you. If you just want to win. If you just want to win. Well, if that-, I, that was the same game where there was somebody who was, he was playing in the same clan as myself and Jason and this other player. And he very much was of the school of thought of he wanted to win. His character was quote-unquote optimized. He could do all this, this really cool stuff. He had no discernible flaws. And my favorite moment in that game was he decided he just didn't want to play along nicely with us. And he was sabotaging something we were doing. So I was dispatched by my owner to go and sort this out. The thing is, my character was genuinely terrible at most things. I'd also taken the flaw thaumaturgically inept. He was a Tremere character who was no good at thaumaturgy, which is really the only thing the Tremere have going for them. So I turn up to, to confront this character who is just a mountain of stats and power and he can chuck flames from his hands. And I've basically just got a bunch of physical traits. And for whatever reason, the luck gods were on my side that night and he missed with absolutely everything. 
and I pummeled him into into torpor. And then the luck gods deserted me when the ref said, okay, make a frenzy test. And I did, and I failed, and I ended up gobbling up his soul. And the best thing about that, though, was the guy playing the prince was so irritated by who this this character was and the hoop what the player was doing is for whatever reason best known to himself he absolved me of this he's like well i'm sure there was extenuating circumstances we'll let him off and it was wonderful there just saying i don't remember the frenzy check i think you did it voluntarily no there was definitely a frenzy check there yeah yeah we believe you matt one thing we didn't talk about which we mentioned at the beginning you're obviously a world famous author for white wolf you've written a bunch of supplements for them what was your favorite one that you wrote and why Ooh, well of the of the four books that I worked on, all for the 20th anniversary of the line, and there was um, Hunters Hunted 2, Anarchs Unbound, Rights of the Blood, and Ghouls and Revenants. I think the one that was probably the most fun for me was Hunters Hunted 2. The, um, the bits I contributed to the books, though, how, uh, to give you a little bit of insight into how, the, uh, how putting a book together works, is that the line developer will give an outline of the book by chapter by chapter, say this is what we want in each individual chapter. And then they will get farmed out to different freelancers. Um, normally, it's a, it's a discrete block that a particular writer will get one chapter, or if it's a particularly big chapter, they might split it in two. Like in the Anarchs Unbound book, I ended up doing the first half of the Anarchs history um, as one of the parts I was given, and then another author did the latter half, the, uh, kind of the Anarch Free State onwards. But anyway, the, the bits that I worked on for Hunters Hunted 2 were the opening uh, fiction section, and then also producing the sample NPCs at the back of the book. And I think they were the most fun because it let me do quite a range of things that because they were quite different, diverse characters that I had to think up concepts for. They had to um, they had to be written fairly succinctly, and it was generally a lot more of a creative exercise. Whereas something like Rites of the Blood, where it was taking the two existing magic supplements and then some references to other clan books where this material appeared, involved a lot more research and sticking to canon that it was fairly constrictive. So overall, I preferred the more creative as- uh, the creative aspect. So yeah, Hunters Hunted 2 would be definitely the one, one for me. Yeah, I actually really liked Hunters Hunted 2. And one of the reasons for that is, some of you guys know I'm a massive fan of Hunter the Reckoning. And one of the things that used to always irk me a little bit was, before Hunters Hunted 2 was a thing, you'd have people say things like, well, I don't like Hunter the Reckoning because it's just about superpowers. And I prefer the original Hunters Hunted because that's about normal people who hunt the supernatural. And then they don't have a whole, a whole ton of superpowers. The thing is, if you look at the original Hunters Hunted, that's the original intent. You read the opening fiction very much that's what Hunters Hunted is about. You look at the cover and the cover's got a kind of confused bunch of people who are holding stakes and torches and maps and they're, they're getting ready to presumably hunt down whatever evil thing it is that, that, that they're after. And then you start reading through the, the character concepts that they have in there. And you read through the character development chapter and a big part of Hunters Hunted is all the cool powers that the characters can have. So they can be psychic, or they can be sorcerers, or they can be bristling with, with true faith, and they can be government agents and have the whole, the whole backing of uh, a federal agency behind them. Or, I mean, you see all that, you think, well, 
what part of that is being a normal person facing off against the night on their own? And you look at the sample characters. The sample characters include an actual vampire, a werewolf, a mage, a TV celebrity who debunks the supernatural and has presumably the entire backing of uh, the Fox network behind them, a hundred plus year old ghoul who has True Faith 9 and who is so powerful that the you know the elders of the Camarilla have basically said, look, just avoid this guy. Let's just let him die of old age and hopefully he'll he'll go away and we won't have to deal with him. And then amongst all of that, there's one concept which is like kind of the vengeful housewife and uh, her particular husband or someone has been taken by a vampire, so therefore she she's out for revenge. But the rest of them, it's all just these super heroic uh, concepts. The thing I liked about Hunters Hunted 2 is you don't actually have that superhero concept in there. There's like a journalist who's seen too much. There's a doctor. There's there's the housewife who's, who's out for revenge. There's one, um, I think it's a surveyor, which is one concept I particularly love. And I think the picture's a guy with a, a trundle wheel going around the place. All of those, I think, work really nicely because you're playing a proper human you don't have psychic powers or you can't throw fireballs or you don't have an FBI SWAT team that you can call in when the vampire needs to deal with. It's basically you and your wits trying to sort out the supernatural. So, yep, hats off to you for Hunter's Hunty 2. It's a very good supplement. Nice, thank you. Yeah, I think that's definitely what I wanted to try and get to with that was bringing it more down to a real level. I think the only one character in the bunch that had even anything remotely odd about them was the uh, the homeless girl that had one dot of true faith who uh, kind of uh, bounced between the various religious run soup kitchens in the, in the city. Yeah, and it was the one thing she could cling to besides her uh, uh, spray can and lighter. Are you doing anything for fifth edition, or are you? purely the 20th anniversary or can you not say <laughs> no no um well because it's moved hands um in quite a way now that there's various different groups producing material because you've got uh white wolf of well or white wolf in inverted commas now uh paradox have farmed it out to modifius and onyx path that they are doing their own things um, at the moment i put my name in the um, in the ring for if modifius wanted anything to do so i think i may be on there um, quite long list of authors that they might hit up at some point, but they haven't they haven't contacted me yet. But I've got plenty of Call of Cthulhu material coming uh, coming my way at the minute. I don't, I'm not exactly uh, going searching for work. <laughs> well, hopefully you get something else for uh, for fifth edition because I know that one of the things that we used to do with our our vampire games was encourage players to to write entries for the Chronicle, which we then put up on various websites that Jason maintained. Uh, you were always one of the most prolific, which, which it is great to see that you're actually now making a career out of of writing for these games. So I think if 5th edition wants someone to write for me, you'd be a, a very fitting choice. Oh, f- fingers crossed. You might, something might come my way, mate. Who played the Vampire collectible card game? And how yes. mu- oh, God, yeah. And how much did you enjoy it? How much did it reflect the tabletop game? I think you've got a lot of the meta plot in there. Plus, it had it had a couple of occasional pokes at itself and pokes of fun, like the uh, Tremere anti uh, anti tribute called Celine, who was uh, who had a werewolf related uh, kind of anti special that was very much in response to the White Wolf Underworld lawsuit at the time, especially with the artwork for the uh, for the characters. <laughs> they, they could certainly do some some tongue in cheek stuff for it. But yeah, I've got a lot 
of cards for that game. I've got a lot. You're welcome, Matt. You're all mine, for starters. Yeah, He's got exactly. mine as well. <laughs> uh, I think I've got almost every clan and bloodline has a deck for it, From in, even the imbued as well, the uh, misstep hunter expansion that they did. But, oh, God, that was a uh, that was a money sink right there. You, if the, the, I think the lesson there is that if you ever want your kids to avoid drugs, get them into a collectible card game. <laughs> it's equally... It's basically... Paper crack, right? Yeah, well, they won't have money to buy, to buy drugs. It'll be fine. Yeah. Same with role-playing, generally. Or miniatures. <laughs> or miniatures, yeah. yeah. I did not get uh, the same uh, addiction that, that you guys did. I mean, I enjoyed it, but uh, I had... My, my big thing back in the day was Magic the Gathering. So, you know, that was where, if I was buying cards, that was what I was spending it on. But yeah, I didn't. And I think at the point when uh, Vitez was, was big, I was like, I can't, I can't be spending. I've, I've done this. I've been down this road before spending oodles of money on a card game. I cannot do it again. Um, but I do still have um, my original cards from before the rename, I believe. Because mm-hmm. it was originally Jihad, wasn't it? Yeah, it was called Jihad, which obviously <laughs> struck me as a really... You're not allowed to sell on the internet these yeah. days. So, sorry, Mr. NSA, yeah. we're talking about a collectible card game. Steve, did you ever play the Vampire card game? Uh, I think you know that I did. I think you know that we played many, many card games of differing flavors together oh, back did, in the day. Did, did I get you into that game, Steve? I don't know if you got me into it, but I do remember... I do vividly recollect several trips through to Glasgow to sit in whatever that store was that we all went to and spent a bunch of money on various card games mm-hmm. including uh, the Eternal Struggle the Star Wars CCG Legend of Five Rings Magic like we were we, there was that crew of us who yeah spent you know, a lot of money right one last question then before we we finish up um, did any of you buy the Gehenna book and if so what did you think of it I mean, I'll start. I, I bought it the day it came out. I largely really liked it. I thought it was a, a fitting send-off. Some of the scenarios that, well, one more so than the others, where I was a bit like, eh, not sure what they were going for there. But I think the actual, I think it was a very bold concept, ending it. I did say at the time, I bet they end up reprinting it. Not Gehenna, the book, as in the, the restarting the line, which they, which they did do. But I, I did largely enjoy the uh, the Gehenna book. I, I collected it, definitely. Uh, I, hold, I held off reading it for a long, long time. Partially because I was thinking that, well, it's going to turn up in a game I'm going to be playing at some point, potentially, so I don't want to have it, I don't want to have it ruined ahead of time. Um, but then also a certain degree of trepidation after I remember being in, actually in a car with Yui and on the way to a game uh, where you described reading one of the options that was in the Ascension book, which essentially boiled down to breaking into Area 51 and stealing an alien, uh, an alien UFO's uh, steering wheel. Yeah. At which point I thought, nah, I think I'll leave this and discover it through play if I'm going to get it. <laughs> oh, that scenario was bloody awful. <laughs> it wasn't a mixed bag for the whole book, right? So some of them were okay. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, in Gehenna, largely the scenarios were, were good and it, it tied up what was happening quite nicely. The, the one that Matt's referring to is from the Mage book and I'm reading it going, I, I don't get what this has to do with what I've been reading for the, the last 10 years or so. Mage is just superheroes though, right? Contentious. Before we sign off then, I'm going to give everyone a chance to give a little shout out. What I'd like to 
shout out this week is the podcast that Matt's on. So for those of you who haven't listened to it, it's called The Good Friends of Jackson Elias. It's largely Call of Cthulhu related, but there's a lot of other horror stuff there in general, horror literature, horror movies, etc. I don't want to embarrass you, Matt, but I think it's wonderful. It's a very easy listen. I've been moving house recently and I've kind of had it on in the background while I've been reassembling and disassembling IKEA furniture. So I've churned through a whole load of uh, episodes and I think you and your your co-hosts do a really good job of taking sometimes what can be really minutiae of the Cthulhu mythos and put a nice spotlight on it and really giving a lot of good ideas that people can use in their games or, or, or fiction if, if that's a thing. Do you want to say any, anything more about it? Let people know where they can get it? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Thank you for saying. It's nice to nice to know that people out there are still listening. Uh, putting a, Definitely putting a spin on uh, Moving House. I remember doing that myself and boy, that was a tedious task. So anything we can, a uh, little bit of horror that we can bring into that to make it a bit more enjoyable, the better. I say there's plenty of horror in Moving House. Well, you can find us in the uh, my other good friends of Jackson Elias, uh, Scott Norwood and Paul Fricker, um, over at blasphemoustomes.com. We've been putting out a series of um, Patreon backer uh, specials as well recently as well. So if you join us on there, there's e- even more good stuff about uh, films, books and TV that we've been examining recently too. Well, I, I heartily recommend it to anyone. I think it's a wonderful podcast, certainly the best Call of Cthulhu one I've ever listened to. So uh, keep up the good work. I mean, you're on like episode a billion or something at the moment, aren't you? Well over 160 now, yeah. It's uh, God, a long time since we've uh, thought about being back in the, uh, the mould-covered shed in Paul's back garden. <laughs> Or uh, Paul's fork back now. What about you other guys, Jason, Steve, Wes, anything you want to add? Oh, yes, the only thing I've been, I've done a lot of stuff about Roll20 recently. So there are some really good YouTube channels around uh, macros and stuff like that that you can use to enhance um, your Roll20. So while we're all social distancing and you still want to role play, making stuff a lot easier. I'm trying to think of any examples at the moment, but I've, I've watched quite a few recently where I can add all my damage together and, and be really, really cool. Because so, that's all I'm interested in is doing damage, right? See, typical Bruja. Uh, Steve, all I could say is don't hold your breath. We're not going to get macros in our Roll20 Warhammer campaign. I can't. Maybe the next Slack him, mate. Has he done, has he done, these, uh, has he done like customised tokens for you yet? I've done some amazing artwork, haven't I, Steve? The best artwork. The map was a thing of beauty. It did, the, did the squares line up? That was the biggest problem I had with Roll20. It, 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 was, it may have been drawn freehand using Roll20's equivalent of paint to go, okay. you are here, you have to cross the sewage to get to there. And that's a great well done. Yeah, that's about as descriptive as my games get. Right, well, anyway, gents, thank you very much for joining me again. We'll have another podcast uh, next month Matt thank you for taking your time out to join us and Wes thank you for joining us again and we will speak to you all again next time I don't know about you but I feel a little bit drained after all that and that was our Vampire the Masquerade roundtable we hope you enjoyed it Ordinarily, I would close out here with the usual stuff, but where to find us on Twitter and Facebook, etc. But in this case, my daughter would like to do the outro. What's up, bros? I would like to thank White Wolf for making Vampire because without them, like my parents wouldn't have met my godparents, who I love a lot. So thank you.